understanding. And then seasonally, Osiris's death and rebirth is also a sexual understanding. Right. Isn't he so, castrated or something and his in his his dick is thrown away or something? Or am I getting he's the not just Am I castrated. messing up my Okay. No, you're not messing it up. He is castrated, but he's not just castrated. He is killed and cut up into 42 pieces that that Seth, his brother, scatters all around Egypt. And Isis, his mourning sister wife, Osiris's mourning sister wife, um, has to collect all of those pieces, put yeah. them back together and wrap them into the first mummy, right? Fantastic. And, ah. But she can't find ah. the penis. It was uh -huh. eaten by oh. a fish. Oh, dear. Oh, heavens. Oh, dear. And, okay. And so she has to magically make one. And then once she does that, she's all put together and he's out laying of in her beer. <laughs> yeah, what does she make the she's penis the of? She's okay. the mistress of magic. Ah, she's got whatever. skills. Wood. Okay. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't think of that. They don't tell us okay. that part. Don't okay. judge. We'll don't judge. Okay. As my father said when I asked him, but how does Jesus get into the bread? He goes, that's the mystery. So <laughs> that's I the think mystery. <laughs> that's right. No, it is the mystery. It needs some mystery. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Our guest today, Dr. Kara Cooney. Uh, she's a professor of Egyptian art and architecture at UCLA. Also the author of three books, including two new ones, The Good Kings and When Women Ruled the World. And she has a tremendous podcast, Afterlives of Ancient Egypt. Check it out wherever you get podcasts. Uh, have you ever talked to an Egyptologist before, Steve? I'm very I excited. Not. I am oh. also very excited. Oh. Yeah, this is going to be going to be awesome. <laughs> Stick around. We're going to dig deep. Get it, Steve, with Dr. Cooney, and get her to finally answer some burning questions about ancient Egyptians, mummies, aliens, cats, human cats. sacrifice, fellatio. <laughs> Kara, it is great to have you here, and I'm going to jump right in with the hard-hitting question on everybody's mind. Alien astronauts. Did they build the pyramids? Yes or no? Facts. I mean, we're going to go right there. I'm fine with it. We can go right there. The um, hard-hitting questions. But, but yeah. Look, by the way, I should start out by saying I don't actually think that that's what I, happened. I assume. I assume. Yes. And well, the, you never know. Well, <laughs> yeah. You never know with me. Let's make it even broader. Let's make it alien technology or Atlantean technology, but it's some ah. kind of superhuman tech because well, there's other believers out there some go for the atlantean yes. side some go for the aliens there's there's all kinds of stuff but as for the non-humans building the pyramids i wouldn't imagine that if khufu were up there listening to what we were saying he would chuckle and be like ha ha it's still working <laughs> on their simple human minds because right. these these pyramids were built as weapons of the mind they were built to get people to believe that these leaders were greater than anything they could possibly imagine and and it's it's still functioning mm -hmm. um that's amazing it, it has a short-term social cost that you can't really sustain so they built three of those stone pyramids through and through on the giza <laughs> plateau there are a couple sure. more at dashur and then they're kind of like we can't do this anymore 
they cheapened them, found a way to make them quick and and kind of a fast proto-industrial production. But the idea of it, of right. this being a construction of a superhuman thing that the person buried inside the juicy human center. Interesting. The juicy center. The juicy center is, is a superhuman. Um, it's a weapon of the mind. Yeah. Interesting. Because, and it's interesting you say that about there's no, they left nothing behind telling how they built them. Because with a lot of these things, it's like that have also this like alien sort of narrative put on them, like the Mayan pyramids and Mm -hmm. the heads at Easter Island and Stonehenge. A lot Mm -hmm. of them, we don't know how they built them. And People say, and it's kind of analogous, Steve, to that thing I was talking about, how that astrophysicist talked about, if we tried to recreate the technology of the Apollo, the original Apollo landings, we couldn't do it. Even though we know how they built them, we probably couldn't do it. So that there's, I always hear people say, we just couldn't do it now, even if Mm. we wanted to try to build the pyramids the way they did, we probably wouldn't be able to. Yeah, is there like a kind of evolution of craft? I know this is one of the areas where you study which is sort of the, I, I think, the development of craft and and so forth. Like the, the assumption that we have is that it's always accumulating and whatever we did before, we've still got it in the in the toolkit, but that's not the case. We lose these things too, No, right? these things are crests of a wave. They go up and then boom, they crash down. And, and so the pyramid, the apex literally of this pyramid building is the fourth dynasty. And after the fourth dynasty is done, they... That craft is arguably forgotten. They never build a pyramid like that again. And, you know, humans like to think that we just build and build and we're always going to keep going up in our in our bull market. And it doesn't work that it way. It doesn't I work stu- that way. No, I study collapse. It doesn't, you know, systems will fail. Everything will fail. And that's how it works. I was, like, I was freaked out by... Uh, I thought that once human beings had acquired fire, it was like we have we had fire ever after. But it turns out we would lose it for long, like thousands, tens really? of thousands of years. Yeah, and then it would appear again, and then it would we would lose it, and that's just it's shocking. Really, and you even can, like the wheel and stuff too. Maybe like did we lose the wheel? Did we lose? Yeah. The Egyptians didn't use the wheel quite as much because it's so sandy, and then you have the river, the wheel. They had it obviously, but. You, you know, you needed a sled out in the desert and you needed a mm-hmm. boat on the Nile. But you could argue that technology takes innovation and adaptability away from people, makes them dependent on the technology. Mm-hmm. And I know other philosophers and other people have talked about this. And then you create a dumbed down human generation that doesn't know how to mm-hmm. do anything. And, and mm-hmm. then there's a collapse and then they have to figure it all out in the next generation. So, oh, great. Yeah, so yeah. The, collapse we're, the collapse we're facing right now, that is a silver lining to that, isn't you it? You know, our phones have not made us smarter. <laughs> no, they certainly haven't. No. Well, I told you, I talked to this paleoanthropologist, Steve, who said that, yeah, the second we discovered fire and invented the wheel, the singularity happened. They took over. The machines took over and we were dependent. <laughs> it's on not them. coming. It already happened. No, it already happened. But now this is an interesting thing. Talking about aliens and, and, and pseudoscience and stuff like that. There is something I have heard about the Sphinx, which to me doesn't sound totally pseudoscientific. I don't know. So I'm going to ask you. Yeah. And I don't know anything about the Sphinx, first yeah. of all. So I want to know it's what okay. the hell the Sphinx just, oh, is. Just go for it. All, don't all right. I'm going to calm down. Really? Okay. So I could just open up. It's back. normally I natural to have questions oh. about the Sphinx. You should oh, not Jesus be ashamed Christ. of those Thank questions. God. I've been so ashamed my whole life that I don't understand this. 
Oh, this is a very good already. I feel much more, much more at home and at peace. So I don't know what the Sphinx is. I'm finally admitting that here. And also I've read somewhere that they say the Sphinx is way older than people thought it was. So I say to myself, if it's older than they thought, like how old is that? Is that true? Is that is that just crazy alien astronaut talk too? Or is that like well, I hope I blow your mind here. So first, watch this. I'll start number one by saying that Egyptologists disagree about what face is actually on the Sphinx. There's some really? who say it represents Khufu. There's some that say it represents Khafre. And then there's all your Atlantean people who say it is 10,000 years older. And then I will blow your mind by saying that the Sphinx is a natural route, rock outcropping to this day. It is a part of the plateau that sticks up or stuck up and looked like a lion-like thing, probably. Until a kingship came along that's like, I'm going to craft that and I'm going to oh. take it and claim it for myself. Now, mm -hmm. imagine that a mountain exists in the world that's sacred to people. I don't know, in the Dakotas somewhere. And then this <laughs> hegemony of people come along and they're like, I'm going to craft that. I'm going to put our faces into it and I'm going to show our power. It's mm -hmm. that, and, and it creates a wound on the society that indigenously owned or connected with that thing or didn't feel it could be owned. And that's the same kind of thing that the Sphinx was doing. It was a natural thing that was there for a million years before. I don't know the date of the Giza Plateau. Somebody can can Google that. But um, when you craft it, you change it, you're claiming it. But that doesn't mean that the rock outcropping dates to your time. It just means the carving that you added to it dates to your time. So when people say the Sphinx is really 10,000 years old, I'll say it's much older because rock is older than 10,000 years. Mm -hmm. And if there's erosion, which people say is water erosion on the side of the Sphinx. Well, Egypt used to be a savanna landscape and there's desert areas with like whale skeletons all over because it used to be mm -hmm. covered with water. So mm -hmm. it's completely possible, and I'm not wow. a geologist, that mm -hmm. this rock outcropping has, well, of course it is much older than what's carved right. onto it, but we right. prioritize uh -huh. the human carving and that's what we're all interested in. And I think we should prioritize a little more but, of the natural landscape. Interesting. You know, Very I have a question on this too, which is um, in in uh, Cambodia, they would frequently have something like at Angkor Wat, where it would be like Shiva sculptures. And then the king would change, the dynasty would change, and it would be like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm into Vishnu. I'm not into Shiva. So they'd go around and scrape off, mm -hmm. you know, or they just sort of palimpsest like a new god onto the old god. So there would be these sort of levels almost. Did that sort of thing happen in Egypt as well? It did, but it's not as significant as Angkor Wat, where you even get shifts from Buddhism to Hinduism and back right. again. I mean, like super confusing stuff. Yeah. You don't have a shift in the religion or the language or the general political system for thousands and thousands of years, but you do get shifts in dynasties. And so you you have in front of the Sphinx, for example, this, you used to before they put it in a museum, this ginormous stela made by Tutmos IV a couple thousand years after the Sphinx was carved into a human form that was visible as a human form. And he sticks it right in front and between the paws to claim it. So mm -hmm. it's, it, it would be like, I don't know, adding a new president's face into Mount Rushmore or something like that. But okay. these claims are constant. Um, constant tension between the the long term, like this mountain has been here forever or this outcropping has been here forever. And then the short term, but I need to claim it now. Right, and but, yeah. I need to connect with those ancestors and I need to do it now. And then there's this shock. Well, how dare you? But mm. then it settles into the landscape and people are like, yes, this is how it has always been. But that Sphinx uh -huh. is, it's very recent that it had a human face carved into it like that. So. And they know it's a human face. You said there was some controversy about the face? There's controversy about the portrait 
of the face. Ah, so in the same way that you can look at was. a coin of Elizabeth I and you're like, that's Elizabeth I. The, the face ah. of the Sphinx, there's different portraits. And I'm in an art history cycle with my grad students right now. And we, I'm testing them. I'm like, okay, I'll put up a king statue. I'll be like, date it for me. And <laughs> which yeah. really makes people ashamed <laughs> and frightened, right? They're like, um, Amenhotep yeah. the third. Yeah, like, scary. No, it is, right? And you I'm have not to, taking your class. I, <laughs> yeah. I train them first and then we date <laughs> things, but it's really fun. But the portraits between Khafre and Khufu, and those are the two biggest pyramids on the Giza Plateau, are very uh-huh. different. One's like a grim sort of guy, and the other one's smiling and happy. Oh, and and because they look so idealized, the Isn't portraits, it? all the sculptures of, of Egyptian, I mean, some of them are clearly more individual, but some of them look so idealized that you can tell the difference. You really can. Yeah. Just by looking at them. Yeah. They're so, they're that like they're that much a likeness of somebody. Well, you bland out the face. You want to make them look awesome. You know, you don't you don't want to see the incest. You don't want to see the the overbite. <laughs> You that's always I that's that's a, that, listen that's a rule i live by i just don't want to see i never want to see the incest i think that's a handy rule that we that's uh thankful look at a portrait of charles of the habsburgs you know his yeah. ginormous head is not in his portrait he is idealized yeah. so is it really is that so the sphinx is really just a is this kind of strange idealized portrait of some ruler and it's like, but also he was awesome, like a lion. Is it like, is that the idea that it's like, or or what is it? Was it a sacred thing? Were people like holding mysterious rites underneath it and summoning the gods or something? Or what was it? Do we know? We'll never know. Or nothing. I mean, this is where, until it's written down, we can't really know. You can't get into the minds of people until you guys invent a time machine. Um, you know, until all of us invent a time machine, we're never going to know. And trying to understand how people associated with the their landscape and the divinities they believed are in their landscape. We can only surmise, we can only guess. And, and but if it's taken over by a king around 2600 BCE, and it's taken over as a lion human king that's associated with the sun rising and setting, then it's very possible that this being on the West Bank of the Nile, where the sun would set, and this looked like a lion, that maybe it was a sun god sort of thing. And and it's there with the the solar cycle. And then the king's like, I'm going to get me some of that because I'm going to put my tomb right right next to it. And I'm going to be the sun god that is setting in the West. But guess what? If I set in the West, I will be reborn in the East and wait for my generation to repeat it. You know, I'll, I'm coming back. In other words, the uh-huh. power is coming back. The hegemony is coming uh, back. Yeah. So it's a, it's a powerful, the, the sun god is a powerful divinity that the kings co-opt take so there is this central god the sun god and you're getting to henotheism versus monotheism um, well it's interesting it's but that, that's interesting i mean i know that there was a king later who who got rid of all the gods and just said he was the only god he was the sun akhenaten yeah, right yeah 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 and, but before that there was a multiplicity. There were all these gods. There was all Anubis and all these gods. But 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 the sun was the most important of them. Mm, you know, it's it's the sun. I think in any culture is associated with kingship, power. Mm-hmm. He's hot to, on your skin. He's warm to the touch. He's got a fatherly embrace. When he goes away, you're shivering, and he's like put you in time out. He illuminates um, everything. He illuminates mm-hmm. the world. His color is yeah. gold. He can see everything. He's there looking at everything. And so th- there's an association with power for the sun god. 
But then there's other underworld gods, chthonic gods, to use the Greek word, Osirian gods that are arguably equally powerful and can be co-opted for kingship, but aren't maybe not as useful as a public facing sort of thing. The sun god was really useful for kingship. So, but, but you know, the, yeah. the lesser gods, I'm sort of interested, it sort of ties the Sphinx discussion together with, I, I also know very little about this stuff, but I know Anubis is like sort of part dog, part human. And I think Bastet might be cat and human. Yeah. So my question is like, what's going on with cats? Because it seems like Egypt and cats yeah, Why were they showing the cats? Yeah. yeah. Cat, and cat. two... I'm really interested in these kind of hybrid creatures. Paul and I have yeah. talked about this before. Like, why yeah. do we mix up the zoological categories like this? Kind of monstrous thing. I yeah. mean, they're it sort is of a monstrous. monstrous. It's a yeah. monstrous thing. Let me start with the second one first. So Anubis is a jackal. He's a scavenger oh, dog that will rip apart dead bodies. So it's a perfect thing for the Egyptians to make him protector of mummification and keeping a body intact. In uh-huh. the same way that the hippo... Um, you'll see a standing pregnant hippo goddess named Taweret, means the great one. And then you would take a hippo, which was responsible for more deaths of children snatched by the banks of the river than any other creature more than a crocodile. You put that in charge of protecting the child from disease and harm. So the Egyptians are taking the thing they're most afraid of, that monster, Uh, right? And uh they're they're co-opting it, containing it, domesticating it, divinizing Uh. it, giving gifts to it so they can get something back. And then mm-hmm. when they do that, they often add a human component to it. So you'll have an air, an animal, like a lion, that's super scary. And then you add a human element to it. So you can have the lion's body, add the human face, or you can have the cat head and add the female body or something uh-huh, like that. Uh-huh. So you put, you put those two things together and then you're like, you're with us now. You're part of us. And mm-hmm. we are part of you. And, and there's this interplay back and forth. Interesting. And now as for the cats, the cat is the symbol par excellence of the sun god. So, and, and the cat's wonderful because the Egyptians saw the lion as the, the fierce, scary sun god that is the king of the landscape and, and can do anything he wants. And then there's the domesticated cat, usually associated with a female who's the protector of the sun god. She can get super scary when the sun god is harmed. She turns into a lioness and she goes and wreaks havoc and gobbles people up and just destroys. So the cat has a lot of, have you ever been attacked by a house cat? I mean, those things can kill yeah. you. Are yeah. you kidding me? My my cat just attacked me about five minutes before. Why do you think I was so agitated when I, we started doing know. this? Really? My cat attacks me constantly, constantly. And they're dangerous, <laughs> like super dangerous. And the Egyptians, of course, knew this, but they needed them for the domestic yeah. spaces, keep it clean. But BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Um, the cat, and the cat, I, I, and then I'm going to get really macabre and rather cynical. Excellent. Right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, so as the funding is pulled from Egyptian temples, as decentralization and state collapse begins, the priests are like, well, what the hell do we do now? How do we make an income? And they're like, we need to sell shit. And they decide to create this animal mummification scheme in which they breed the animal, 
dedicated to in their temple. So if it's Temple to Sobek, they'll breed crocodiles. Temple to Bastet, they'll breed cats. And then an elite rich person will come to them and say, I have a prayer. And they're like, oh, we got you covered. And we're going to send that prayer directly to heaven with this animal who we will kill. <laughs> we'll put you, really? your prayer is going to go in and they're going to mummify it. And then that prayer will go to the heavens. But it's a, it's, um, these animals were actually purposefully bred, purposefully sacrificed, murdered, whatever really? you want to call it, mummified, embalmed, and then contained in really fancy things that put the name of the, the person on it. And just like lighting a candle in a Catholic church. Sure, I, I was going to say. Right? So it's like, yeah, yeah. So it's like going to the like Wicca store and getting the, the right kind of candle and the right kind yeah. of oils and the right kind yeah. of. Really? So this is just a, is this a scheme that the priestly class set up? Or, or was it the government was getting the money from all the dead cats and dead parrots and stuff like <laughs> I mean, that? There's less government organization of that. And I would say more institutional priestly. I would say it was a corporation. By that time. And it's run by the elite people because they want to show everyone else, look at the cat burial that I just bought. Everyone's like, damn, look at your cat burial. And <laughs> and it's a whole So you, you could get your you get a burial for your own cat too. I mean, would you be like, my cat died and now I gotta get a little pyramid built there and I have are to have a pet thing? burials, and that's not what this was. Because what usually uh, you'd this... all kill your cat to bring it with you into the next life. That's so crazy. Well, but this makes me think about something else. That's I mean, so who got Obviously, there's a ruling class, an aristocratic class. Oh, yeah. They get the fancy shit. Then there must have been some sort of like bureaucratic middle class that facilitates those guys. They got decent burials. They got mummified. They got everything settled in that way or no? That so was just for the rich people. Of, it was just for the rich people. When people think of Egypt, they're like, oh, everyone had a tomb and everyone had a coffin. Mm. Yep. Mm. The coffin and embalming of the body are social separators par excellence. Like there's nothing that's mm -hmm. going to work better on a human mind than this rich person gets to live forever bodily mm -hmm. and you're going to rot. And that right. just, you know, how do you, how do you confront that? How do you deal with that? You, you know, who are the haves and who are the have nots? It's not to say that a poor person can't put their body out in the desert and get natural lubrication because that's where it comes from and they can't, <laughs> but Jesus they're not going to get all the riches and all the stuff, yeah. right? Uh huh. Yeah. So, so I study so, all these coffins and all this stuff, and it's and poor, um, but poor people were just buried. How? I mean, they were just buried in. Or people generally, you would clean the body, wash it in some way. You wouldn't take out internal organs, and you would, you know, there's palm trees everywhere, so you would create a palm rib matting, and you would roll the deceased inside of that. Linen was really expensive. They probably wouldn't bandage them up in that. You'd put uh -huh. them in a garment of some kind. Maybe uh -huh. give them a a, a little object of, of his or her own children. And we don't know exact numbers of how many children died, but let's, let's say that as many as 50% could have died before the age of five. And when they died, you would bury them underneath the, your home floor, which was usually an earth floor. But you don't want to put them out into the Western desert, into that graveyard, little infant. You wouldn't want to do that. You probably had like, you know, we have talked to the ancestors in an Asian culture. You would probably talk to your dead babies. Sure. I like this idea. Well, I do yeah, too. I like this idea. Well, we we tend to think that uh, when the loved one dies, that the relationship is over. But oh no, in this culture, the relationship continues. Oh, it seems ongoing. Yeah. yeah. So they obviously. When does cremation start? Or it must have been happening at other, in other cultures at the same time, right? Or is that later? Is cremation later? Egyptians don't like create cremation, and you could no, argue I'm that sure. Egyptians don't like cremation to this day. And I would ah. say that these things. I'm not saying that theologies or, or moralities can't override 
the earth that we're a part of. And we in North America, we're not embedded in this. We, we've been here for a couple hundred years. We're colonialists and takers of indigenous land. But if you grew up in a place where you're more embedded in the landscape, your funerary practices are going to follow that. So think of a place where it's super wet. Um, uh -huh. There's different ways of going about it. Like, say you're in Vietnam. And there you might, in the South, where more of the elites are gathered, you might do a big conflagration of the body so everyone can come and see it. And you're burning the body and it's a Buddhist thing and it goes off into the heavens and all of that. Mm -hmm. um, so that works. But I've been to Northern Vietnam where they bury the body, but for short term, like three years, and they come back mm -hmm. on the full moon and they dig up the body and they pull mm -hmm. out the bones and everything's decomposed but the bones. And they clean mm -hmm. them off and they bring them to a, a shrine or they bring them home. So, mm -hmm. you know, what you do with the body, it depends on the geography yeah, that, in, that you're um, a part what's of. The culture, what's, what's the culture oh, where they bring the bodies out, Steve, in Southeast Asia? In, there's in, some, in, right? in Bhutan, there's a sky burial uh, technique that's practiced in Vajrayana Buddhism in Bhutan and Tibet, places where you bring the body out and the family actually dismembers the corpse so that like, you know, birds of prey will come and actually lift parts of the body up to the heavens. This yeah. can help with a, a new rebirth that's higher up on the scale of being or something. You could argue that in the mountainous landscape, you don't have earth to bury them in. You don't have any wood to burn them with. So one of the really the only way you can get rid of them is just kind of scatter them about and be like, come on, vultures, come and eat yeah. them. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. And that religious belief is so important that even when a bunch of um, Parsi people moved to Mumbai, they created sky burial platforms mm. and wow. feed the vultures to keep them around so that uh -huh. when they put a dead body there, they can come and in Mumbai, India. I mean, it's not that's, meant to be. That's how I want to go. Right? Chop yeah, me no, up, I'd put me out on a hill. Yeah, yeah. But there's some, there's some group, and I think it's in Thailand or somewhere in Southeast Asia, where once a year they actually bring the bodies out. They oh. keep they keep the bodies and they bring the embalmed ancestors out, and you sit with them and you have a meal. Yeah. And oh. you yeah. set up a whole, and, and yeah. they they bring them out mm -hmm. once a year, which is amazing. So they kept up this kind of the, the whole point to it was to keep up this relationship with the dead that there was no sense that they were gone this is something i don't this is something i have never understood you mummify the body you take out all of the organs right and you put them in these jars rich and people, everything rich people do these things but yeah rich people do these things yeah, rich yeah. people do these things um you have all of this done the idea is you're going to be bodily resurrected. Your whole body's going to come up, and you're going to put all this shit back in you, and you're going to and you're going to be fine. A, where are you going to be resurrected? Is there a, is there an afterlife? Is there a heaven? Is there a hell? There's not really, is there? There are both or, of these things. We could talk about heaven and hell, and you could argue please. that Egyptians are the first to invent the heaven and hell. But this conundrum of a physical preparation, this is not easy. Um, I. And I thought, I obviously, I work with death, right? I think about this all the time. I'm like, why? I don't think the Egyptians are primitive. They don't believe that, oh, we are so simple-minded that we think we need the dead human body to get food in the afterlife. I think the way it works is that when, when you bury the dead in ancient Egypt, it's a social contract. You give them awesome stuff. They give you their inheritance of power and wealth and, and, and land and all of these things. So you're like, here's my awesome burial. I'm doing it. I get all the good shit. And there's this give and take, right? Now, if you set that up as a rich, wealthy person and you have a tomb chapel that everyone visits, you need to physicalize that for everyone to see. But also the physicality of the body underneath the tomb 
means that you maintain a connection with this world. And if that body decays, then that ancestor can't be connected to this world anymore. You don't have that give and take with a powerful ancestor. So you could argue that being embalmed is kind of a burden, perceived as such, that you kind of stick around a little bit more. You're like a bodhisattva. You have to like hang out and be a part of the world of the living. And maybe there's an understanding that other people get to move on to the next place with more speed. But but the Egyptians don't lay this out. Religion is never like, step A, very clear, uh-huh. step B. Uh-huh. It's always uh-huh. messy and confusing on purpose, right? Yeah. And the Egyptians are no a, different. Yeah. This is a question I have too. It's really related to this because the if you look a little bit later in the Greek culture, you have uh, Plato and the idea that the soul is really immaterial and separate. And this is before that. And it's yeah. sort of in between the body and the soul. And I was, Paul and I have talked about the imagination a lot uh, over the last few years. And I feel like there's something really interesting happening here when you, when you see the body and you wrapped it up like a mummy or you've, you've buried it and you know, there's the body. Okay. But there's some part of your imagination that says, well, there's some kind of invisible version of this that's yeah. in another realm. And then that imagination like makes a new reality that like people living in secular cultures don't don't do. You know what I mean? So the Egyptians were so concerned with this that they created a nine-part schema of all of the parts oh. of the human soul and physicality and how they work together. So there's wow. the, there's the corpse, uh-huh. Uh-huh. there's the shoot, that's the body. That's the the shadow. So it's a human living body that's in a solar space. The sun is shining on it. You have a shadow. It's a good thing. You want to be in the presence of the sun. Oh, wow. So that's, That's uh, oh, wow. Oh, that's really cool. There's a ka, which is a soul that is physicalized kind of, but it's there to be able to eat and have sex. So it does have a physicality. There is the ba, which is the little bird, the human headed bird that flies around. Spirit of mobility Uh can go from place to place. Is it physicalized kind of, but it can move around? Um, there, there's move around, in, move around in move around in terrestrial physical space, or move between worlds. Well, the move between, between worlds, between mm. worlds, and in oh. physical space. So the Egyptians, when they saw like all of the birds flying around right before the sunset, they're like, oh. "Oh, those are the ancestors having one last go before they go down oh. into the west with the sun god and accompany him on his twelve hours of, of night." So there's cool. a constant push and pull between the spirit and the body, between the spirit and the body, and it's oh. not. You're you're never going to get to a truly satisfactory answer, and you know we inherit a lot of this stuff. Again, grew up, grew up Roman Catholic, no longer practicing. But you know, if you're going to be, if you're going to prove that somebody's a saint, what's one of the first things you do? You dig up the body and you check for incorruptibility. Right. It has wow. how much is that body broken down? Right. That is so ancient Egyptian. I can't do right. it, and it doesn't work as well in Italy, perhaps, but it's or it's more of a miracle in an Italian Roman. Or is it coming from Egypt, you know, because Christianity is a Levantine thing, obviously. Um, so, you know, the, these these tensions between do you need the body, do you not need the body? Ask a Christian, an evangelical Christian, can you be cremated or not? And their mind might explode. Too. Right. You need the body. Yeah. You'd have to have the body. Yeah. yeah. But some are cremated. And then what does that mean? Is it done? Are you are you done? <laughs> you yeah, my understanding was right. you couldn't, right. uh, you, you weren't supposed to anatomize the body. And, you know, this is one of the, you know, strictures against doing anatomy was that you were going to get your body back. So don't carve yeah, it all so up. So don't but, fuck know. it up. Yeah. yeah. Don't like yeah. cut everything yeah. out. Yeah. So, so you said before there's a heaven and a hell that, yeah. that, that they may have, they may have originated the idea yeah. of these two realms where yeah. a good person goes or a bad person goes. And what's the story with that? Was it, was it 
a given that you were just going to go there because you were rich and you got mummified and you were going to go? Or what was the story with that? I mean, my first answer is hell's no, it was not a given. And then my second answer is the rich will always find a way to negotiate around through material Uh things, right? So there are these little things called heart scarabs um, that are meant to be a green stone. It has a text on it. And it says, oh, heart of my mother, oh, heart of my mother, do not speak against me in the hall of judgment. And you put that onto the heart of the dead because the dead person is going to stand in front of a scary tribunal full of gods with like heads of fire and like eyes that shoot lasers. I mean, just horrible things. You stand in front of these guys and they're going to interrogate you. And you also have to profess a negative confession. I have not killed. I have not ordered to be killed. I have not stolen and on and on. And Uh if... You And who has not done a bad thing? Because it gets pretty detailed, this list, right? Uh-huh. Well, your heart scarab is going to help you so that your heart doesn't, because your heart is one of your spirits, according to the Egyptian nine part, you know, the, uh-huh. and the Hati. These are also elements of your physical soul, however you understand it. Your heart could be like, ah, uh, remember the time? Right. A bad thing. And you'd be like, and, and, oh, right? Oh. <laughs> so it's like, oh. it's like a magical baptism thing. Think of Dante. You know, the worst, most egregious sinners just right before they die can be like, oh, and I'm sorry, God. And then they yeah. get to right. go to purgatory, yeah. right? And everyone else yeah. has to have hellfire. So it, it, there is that human understanding of, of subverting a moral system. But the Egyptians, you know, if you didn't pass that tribunal, you would get eaten. And this, Stephen, I think is where your idea is coming from of the, the goddess that was part lion-s, part crocodile, part hippo. She would eat your heart. And okay, then, I heard something about like your heart would be, yeah, would be well, did, weighed at your yeah, they weigh life. it or something, yeah, something yeah, about a feather or something the like feather that. Feather of truth, your heart's <clears> on one <throat> side, the feathers on the other. You're cool. saying the confession, you're doing the interrogation, all of this stuff. If you don't pass, and they'll never show this in the text. Book of the Dead is always like you're going to pass. You're going to pass. Huh? You make it a fait accompli <laughs> in your in your materiality, right? And then she won't eat your heart. But right. And then is that a non-existence or is it? an existence in a hell-like realm because there's a whole lot of visual imagery that shows dead being repeatedly decapitated, dead being roasted in pots, oh, really? dead really? eating excrement and drinking urine, on and on. Well, where's so, that stuff? That's the no, stuff so I want to see. I know. I've never, I've never seen that stuff. Yeah. It's I only, yeah. It's yeah. Our, so you want to go to the books of the underworld? And sure. there's the first one is called the Amduat, that which is in the underworld. And then there's a whole host of other books, Book of Caverns, Book of Earth, um, Book of Day and Night. But most of that stuff is going to be in the Amduat and the Book of Gates. And, and that's where the sun god slash king is going through the 12 hours of night, which is divided into time and space. And he's taking over his dominion, but he's also creating his own rebirth, which is connected to Christian virgin birth. Yeah. But that's a different discussion. Yeah. Well, no, it is interesting. It is interesting to me how much of this stuff had an influence in Christianity later. I mean, through the Greeks, I would assume. Right. I mean, it's like through the Greeks, it gets to. Yeah. Not necessarily just through the Greeks, because Egypt is right here. And then Mm -hmm. you've got Italy and the Mediterranean. It's a whole Mediterranean show. So it doesn't have to be parsed through them. But, uh, you know, Paul is going to parse it in you know, there, there are Greeks who are people writing in Greek who are parsing it through their cultural lens. Yeah, th- th- right. there's a there's a feature of um, Egyptian culture. And I know your work sort of looks at this, too, which is uh, it's it's like a very erotic, sexualized cosmology where mm-hmm. what you know, the creation is just like 
guys jacking off yeah, and just jacking off and, and yeah, penis is getting cut right. off and yeah it's and just, it's like yeah. this in southeast asia too you know and i'm i'm just thinking like a lot of this influenced christianity like paul said but not that like that stuff was seemed to be bracketed out or maybe that was just a slow editorial phase you know yeah i mean one wonders why this christian europe became so anti-sex anti-marriage and connected with Jesus as a castrated man and mm. uh, not yeah, maybe physically, but well, seriously yeah. kind of castrated. Um, again, I'm not a New Testament Christian scholar, so I don't, I don't know about that, but the, and how exactly that mechanism happened, but Egypt was a very sexy place for its creation mythologies. Yeah. Um, the, you know, the creation of the world was a yeah. literal masculine ejaculation of a uh -huh. God. Was a big bang. one, so it's but it's just it's a huge bang, and it's and it's one guy, it's it's one entity is like that's it. I have to I have to I have to beat off and just and everything comes from that. Yeah. So that's a, but that's not really that different from it's the not Christian. Crazy. No, it's not that different from you, the Christian thing either. I mean, it's no, like, it's not. But the Christians take the sex out of it. They do take. The yeah, sex out I think. Of it. So. Well, you were. I think. I but, think I read but, something. Yeah. Oh, no, but I'll say that Coptic Christians, if you read your Gnostic Coptic mm. text, and again, I'm not an expert, but you'll mm -hmm. see things in there about the Holy Spirit being like breast milk and being like the mother goddess. And uh -huh. so there is, you know, and, and there's this idea, there is a more sexual component in the Gnostic Christian text, the early uh -huh. stuff that they then removed. But so there's, there's like an in-between. Egypt certainly yeah. didn't want to let that go. No. And if we hung out with a bunch of Coptic Christians, you know, priests, I wonder how much of that might be in there in their text versus not, but yeah. So, but I think, I feel like I read something that you talked about. The original act was a kind of self fellatio was kind of guy, guy giving himself a blowjob. Is this I right? Mean, yeah. Because the way it works is if you're one being, hmm. one divine entity and you're yeah. in darkness and chaos and primeval matter and infinite, infinite space. And you're just, you're like, I want to create myself and you only have yourself to do it with. Well, the mm -hmm. Egyptians had a way because the hand had a mm -hmm. had a female word, kind of like when you're a kid watching the Smurfs, there's Smurf and Smurfette, and you had a T. Mm -hmm. The Egyptians mm -hmm. had words and they would add a T. So Jaret is is the hand. <laughs> and so you grab your Jaret and you go to town with your masculine element. And but then the next part of the text is confusing because he the this entity, Atom, he then sneezes out a void and spits out a, a wetness. And to do that, there are papyri that show the god committing autofellatio, um, mm -hmm. or as you say, Paul, giving himself a blowjob. And Thank then, you. Uh, no problem. And then he's back <laughs> all in there and, you know, he creates the, the yes. void of light. And those are Fantastic. two divinities. He creates Shu and Tefnut. Shu is the dry space and Tefnut is the moistness. They have sex, regular old-fashioned sex. They create uh -huh. another generation, um, earth and sky, or sky and earth. <laughs> um, and then, and then they create the next generation of four gods: Osiris, Isis, Seth, and Nephtis. And and then it, you know it goes on from there. So it's um it's a very sexual understanding. And then seasonally, Osiris's death and rebirth is also a sexual understanding. Right? Isn't so, he castrated or something? And his in his his dick is thrown away or something or am I he's getting not the just am I messing up my okay no you're not messing it up he is castrated but he's not just castrated <laughs> he is killed and cut up into 42 pieces that 
that Seth, his brother, scatters all around Egypt. And Isis, his mourning sister wife, Osiris' mourning sister wife, um, has to collect all of those pieces, put them yeah. back together and wrap them into the first mummy, right? Fantastic. And, but ah. you can't find the ah. penis. It was eaten uh -huh. by a oh. fish. Oh, dear. Oh, heavens. Oh, dear. And, okay. and so she has to magically make one. And then once she does that, he's all put together and he's laying Out of what? Mary Beer. She's yeah, what does she make she's the penis mistress of? Mistress of okay. magic. Ah, she's clay, got whatever, wood. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't think of that. They don't tell us that. Okay. Don't judge. Okay. Don't we'll try move to ahead. As okay. my father said when I asked him, but how does Jesus get into the bread? He goes, that's the mystery. So I think <laughs> that's the mystery. <laughs> that's right. No, it is the mystery. It needs some mystery. Jesus wow. makes it, and that's okay. And then he's laying there on the beer, and there's a whole cartoon um series of this that's beautifully depicted at Dendra in a rooftop crypt chapel kind of thing and he lays there dead and then in the next scene his penis comes up and then in the mm -hmm. next scene his hand reaches out and and then isis is like here's my moment and she turns herself into a bird and lands on top of the penis and conceives horus and so you have a new oh. king on earth and then osiris lifts himself all the way up and it's like oh my god he's come to life he's risen you know so there's a um when I was in uh, Asia, I hiked to the top of this mountain and there was a, a riverbed and they had carved a thousand uh, penises. These are, is the lingam, which is a symbol of Shiva and, and generative, you know, fecundity, fertility. And yeah. so the, when the rains come, the, the water goes over the lingam and then out into the fields to create a greater, you know, crop or whatever. Yeah. But I was thinking that as as sort of embracing of sexuality as these cultures are in their theology, they're still sexually modest and conservative as cultures. Like they're not like in in Cambodia, people are not having orgies. You know what I mean? Like were they in Egypt though? Were they though? In yeah, Egypt? that's a question. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, okay. So yes and no. So let me put in one point there that links back to what we were just talking about. And then I'm going to go to sexual modesty because that's really cool. Um, you know, if you go to Pompeii and you walk around, there's penises mm. carved all over the streets, right? Good luck, yeah, well, symbol Romans, fertility, yeah. all this yeah. stuff. Romans, then, the Romans were out of control. The right. Romans were not. And that with helps that you stuff. to understand when Christianity enters these areas, even if it was highly sexualized in its creation, that's going to mm. be tamped down because you're going to move against the polytheistic system that was there mm. before. So if if every administration wants to be different from the last administration, then they're yeah. going to be like, oh no, we would never, we would <laughs> right. never do that thing. So we're not going to be all sexy time like that. We wouldn't blow ourselves in this administration. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I, I, they don't want to have sexual relations with that woman. They're going to do something else, right? Yeah. And on and yes. on and on, always. Even yes. though they do the same thing, they're going yes. to differentiate themselves and, yes. and make it seem so. Interesting. And then sexual modesty, you know, Egypt was a patriarchy like every other place. Unless you're in a hunter-gatherer situation where sex is not scarce, just read your Jared Diamond and everyone gets to have their sexy time whenever they want um, with certain taboos installed. Like there's less child uh, sexual abuse in a hunter-gatherer society, arguably, it depends on where you are um, really? and how you define it, but than within the four walls of a patriarchy. But huh. patriarchy is not about free love and free sex because patriarchy is about economic control, marriage to make sure you know who owns what generationally. And if you have too much free love and you don't know whose father this kid is, yeah. then he is not going to inherit shit. You're going to call him right. a bastard and you got trouble. Mm. So yeah. even though every culture has some sort of release valve where we're all going to have sexy, crazy time here at this festival or whatever, and the Egyptians are no different, and the Egyptians had 
a freer time socially for reasons that are economically interesting, they still, you know, kept things tamped down because a sexual free-for-all was an economic free-for-all. It would have been mm-hmm. a disaster. Yeah. Mm. So, but, but, but Egypt, they... Egyptian women could get divorced. They could bring oh. money in and out of their household. They could um, bring a court case if their husband was beating them. They could do all kinds of things that you couldn't do in the Levant where, you know, if you got raped, they're like, did you get raped in the city or in the countryside? And you're like, oh, I got raped in the city. And oh, no one heard you scream, stoning. Uh, and so, oh, <laughs> right, yeah, right. Just read your Leviticus <laughs> and Deuteronomy. Oh, it's sure, not, yeah, it's yeah, not yeah. Right. Whereas yeah. that kind of thing you wouldn't have in Egypt. And you had more free um, sexual expression and more power for women. That's probably because land ownership was not very high in Egypt. Most people were sharecroppers. But they did have, there were female pharaohs though, right? I mean, there were, there were not many, right? And and that must have been yeah, not shocking, I suppose. But yeah, I mean, but how did that even come to pass? That's interesting. But there were not many of them, right? About five, yeah. if we include Cleopatra. Um, some don't want to okay. include Cleopatra because she's Macedonian Greek, but she fits the, she fits the patterns pretty well. So, you know, there's a... It's an amazing thing that women were allowed to be leaders of state, and I call them female kings. I don't call them queens because the Egyptian word for queen denotes no power. So these these women were allowed to become leaders of state because they were connected to family dynasties that wanted to keep their power. So mm-hmm. because Egypt was so authoritarian and because it didn't have, it was geographically protected and didn't have a whole, whole lot of invasion and because the Nile River allowed a lot of cheap carbs and happy drunkenness. There wasn't a whole lot of internal <laughs> warlording. Your dynasty stays for like 300 years. Unbelievable. And yeah. If you've wow. got a kid who becomes king at 10, you know, if you try to pull that off in Mesopotamia, he'll be dead within a week. Italian Peninsula, there is no 10-year-old king. But in Egypt, yeah. you're going to allow that. But you'll allow that with the woman being the regent decision maker on your behalf. Uh-huh. And so there are dozens of women who acted as decision makers for young kings. That happened all the time, which wouldn't have Uh happened in other places, right? And then five times those women were able to transcend even that kind of decision making and become formal kings. But it's the authoritarianism that lets them. So did things get much better under women? Like the general assumption is the patriarchy is so awful. Right. Was it better? Women were in charge. Everything would get better. And my question is like, did it get better and how much better and in what way? Were they considered great rulers? In a way, no, it doesn't really help that you have a woman there as leader of state because she's in a patriarchal system that demands certain things. Now, you know, at at the same time, the Egyptians allowed women to rule because they couldn't raise armies the way a man can raise armies. That's how they got into power at all, because they didn't have the social professions and abilities to connect with other men to to build some sort of competition. So in that unequal patriarchal way, a woman has to rule differently, even within ancient Egypt. And as a female king, she has to rule differently. And Hatshepsut, for instance, had to rule differently, give more to get what she got, give more to elites and things like that. Um, but they're not necessarily more peaceful. So Mernaith, the first, um, she wasn't a female king, but she was incredibly powerful, one of the first regents. She's there deciding human sacrifice and who lives and who dies at the funeral of her husband to install wow. her son 
So <laughs> she's the queen of blood, if if you like. And she's hold not- it, hold it, uh, hold on. I, I'm, I don't mean to divert this, but and like they they committed human sacrifice. I did bring up human sacrifice. Yes. <laughs> you yeah, sure that, did. That just went by fast. Kind of, kind of <laughs> casually tossed that out. I didn't know that they that they indulged in human sacrifice for about a hundred, little over a hundred years in the first dynasty when kingship was new. The ancient Egyptian elites created a system in which the king is dead, long live the king. At that transition of power, that most vulnerable transition, you create a kind of uh, death cult, if you if you like, in which certain people among the elite, among your fellow mm. elite, are sacrificed, murdered, killed, whatever you want to call it, to go with the king into the tomb. So he'll bring uh-huh. in... A couple right. of hairdressers and a manicurist. Sure. He'll bring in a whole <laughs> bunch of wives. He'll bring in some of his sons sure. because he needs an army. Yeah, know, he'll bring right. in all of this stuff. And then everyone would have gathered together. And this happened in different places. Like they went to Saqqara and they did this. And then they're like, let's go down to Abydos and do it again. And then they come mm-hmm. down to Abydos and make a selection again. How the selection is made, we don't really know. Um, uh-huh. But these people would have watched their friends and family members die before their eyes and then that would have manufactured this kingship a a king who has power over life and death an institution to which you must sacrifice yourself and to which Mm -hmm. you owe the debt of your life potentially Mm -hmm. and these people were just reified in front of your face yeah and these people were just they weren't mummified they weren't given any of the dignity of mummification or any of that kind of stuff oh they were okay there's mummification dynasty one and (laughs) these bodies (laughs) mummification is not great but no they each got little markers they got their name on it they got a little room of their own it's a whole it's a whole thing so there's respect associated with this and i guarantee Uh you that there was a quid pro quo so if your family member went in and got sacrificed you uh, got your family got some goodies in return. Uh-huh, we can't sure. prove it, but come on. Sure. How do these things work? Right? right? Why else would you be doing it? Yeah. yeah. And there's a tradition that uh, I don't know whether this happened in Egypt, but in China, the legend is that when Huang Di comes along, he changes from actually killing, you know, family members and royals to yeah. actually making these terracotta warriors. Yeah. It's almost like symbolic, yeah. you know voyagers with him to the other world or something is that did that kind of thing like did that happen at a certain point that they stop killing the people and actually just make little clay figures of them i mean it's the coolest thing that you can see this kind of human sacrifice particularly burial sacrifice wherever kingship is being established and to establish it whether you're in africa and europe and asia and the new world you see this and then you also see as as you mentioned Stephen, this pushback this next administration coming in and saying, we would never, this is too harmful. This is too painful. We're not going to do this to you. We're going to be the good kings who would not do this. And they disassociate themselves from that practice. But they can, because you have a cultural memory of deep pain that all of us still feel. Like you'll go stand in front of a pyramid anywhere or some burial anywhere. And it's of a great king. And you'll be like, did they sacrifice people to go in here? You'll know to ask that. And yeah. the answer might be not then, but, you know, 500 years earlier, um, yeah. not in the Great Pyramids, but 500 years earlier, right next door. Yeah, they did do that. So the, these are ways to establish power. And then to keep the power, you're like, oh, no, we won't do that anymore. And here's a, here's a substitute. And we're going to be nice to you. <laughs> uh-huh. So, you know, this is how it works. So, but so speaking of like switches in administration, I am interested in that Akhenaten guy. The guy who who the really changes yeah really changes everything over yeah not and I'm not I'm not trying to be a 
a horrible show, but I did. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I did just. I have a about him. My so God, woman. This this guy, he was the he wasn't the choice to be king. He was probably the second or third son, and the other sons died before um, they could be king. His father, Amenhotep III, was, you know, the richest, most powerful, amazing, long-lived king ever. Like, he was he was extraordinary. And, you know, when he died, Akhenaten had some fully formed ideas about what the king sh- should be, what Egyptian religion should be, and he started creating those as soon as he could. There's like a couple of blocks that show him with a regular body and a regular face. And then he changes everything, changes his name. He changes the way he looks and the Mm. way he looks. And I'm trying to think if I have something here that I could show. He he was good propaganda. Yeah. Well, short term, but maybe Mm -hmm. not long term. I like to think in terms of short term, long term, because we, Mm -hmm. our administrations will make a decision that can work very well to create power in the short term. But over the long term, we'll destroy the dynasty. And that's what Akhenaten does. It destroys his dynasty. But, you know, you can think in your mind's eye of a king with an elongated head, a chin uh-huh. that's like super pulled down. The eyes yeah. are like oblique in the face. Crazy kind of looking. Alien-like. And he's yeah. got, you know, these slit-like eyes. And his neck is like twice as long as it used to be. His shoulders are really skinny and he's got these clavicles. And then when you get to the lower body, he's got this little waist and big ass hips, like feminine hips. And big belly that folds over. His belly button is all smooshed, and there's a way to Weird. carve that oh, stone. Awesome! It's really cool. And this and, was and this. Yeah. Wait a minute, though. So he changed his look into that. Yes. From an idealized thing into that. And do yes. we think that that was a more accurate representation of what he looked like, or was there some reason he was doing that because it was symbolic of something? You hit was... on one of the most talked about issues of Akhenaten. Did he really look like that, or mm. did he have an ideological point? You, you do that. And, Thank you. and Egyptologists are back and forth and back and forth. And some people are like, oh, he was a hermaphrodite. Well, how could he have kids uh-huh. if he was a hermaphrodite? And oh, he had a syndrome. They'll give him a syndrome like Froelich syndrome, Markham uh-huh. syndrome or uh-huh. whatever. Say he had a genetic <laughs> disorder. And and but he depicted himself normal before. And then like this after mm. what's going on. Interesting. Um, my opinion is that he's trying to make himself look like a being of light. He's mm-hmm. trying to use his body to be the pyramid, to be the miracle, if you like. Mm-hmm. So that, mm-hmm. and, and how do I explain this? It's, it's complicated, but like you're at a temple and he loved this thing called a window of appearances, which is nothing more than a, than a big rectangular window high up. Your elites mm-hmm. are down there. You come to this window and there's space behind you. And he seemed to wait for when the sun was right behind him, setting or rising. So that people would look at him and be like, ah, I can't see oh, the divinity nice. of the king. It's too much <laughs> for my smart. simple human eyes, right? Smart. Yeah, smart. And what and think of close encounters of the third kind when the sure. aliens come out of the spaceship and they're all like, you know. And then you sure. realize they're just little children aliens and it's not a big deal, but right. they, it elongates the light. It makes you look superhuman and weird. And uh-huh. I think that's what he was going for. And I, and other Egyptologists are like, he's trying to be animal and human at the same time. I totally uh-huh. agree. And he's Uh trying to be male and female at the same time. I totally Uh agree. Because this is the guy who's like, we're not going to have Anubis and Sobek and Atum Uh and all these gods anymore. We're done. The only God is the one that you can see and feel in the sky. 
It's there. And that's and that's me that's too. It. I mean, and, and he's I and, and it's him. His son. And I am yeah. it. Yeah. I am his <clears throat> son. I am his physical mm. emanation. And my mm-hmm. wife is his physical emanation. And our children are that. And mm-hmm. you, so he is the icon. He's not, he's the God, but he's the right. son of the God. He knows right. he's not the son, but he he's turning his body into an icon. And his uh-huh. temple is open to the air, no more closed, smoky, incensey spaces. It's open to the air and you see the sun going forth. And then when he mm-hmm. moves in the temple, he's the icon that must be served and <clears> fed <throat> and clothed and right. sexed and all the things that you would do for your God. Yeah. He's mega creepy. Yeah. I have a yeah. theory why he looked the way he looked. Yeah. He was an alien. <laughs> You're like, yeah, go. There's okay, countless. This, I'm, not, I'm not letting go of it. No, he was an alien. Hang on, man. <laughs> Don't is, ever let go. <laughs> no, but he, he is, he, he is alien saying. looking. That is yeah. indeed what he is saying. He You're is right. indeed yeah. saying, I am You're not right. of this earth. I'm not yeah. like you guys. I am no. of this part of the world. Amazing. I come from up there and I you can't touch me. He is actually saying Yeah, but but Paul is not saying that it's <laughs> no, no. symbolic. He was he's from, like, no, he he's was a from fucking the, alien. The star yeah, system of Beetlejuice. I don't think Akhenaten was saying it was symbolic either. And in uh, his right, cracked that's mind, I yeah, actually no, think he, he been, believed it. I think he was he clearly probably well, a little crazy. One of the things, uh, you know, in a chinwag like this, one often does not learn anything. That's sort of Paul and my thing. But yes, in this but, case, I have learned that uh, self-fellatio is actually a much more important thing than I thought. So I've learned that uh, I'm going to call my right hand Paulette from now on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Put in Egyptian papyrus audio autofillation, you will get ancient papyri that show the okay. god all really? built up on himself. Indeed. Okay. Yeah, yeah that's what well, we're doing next. Can, <laughs> if you can do it, why not? That's what I always say. If you can swing it, why not? But definitely, yes. Uh learned a lot. Hippos are really are yeah, are, are terrifying. Hippos are scary. You got it. Hippos are super terrifying. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you. That was really fun. Yeah. Thank, Thank you, you so much. much. Thank you very much, Doctor. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on Chinwag. And of course, if you like what we're doing, and even if you don't, especially if you don't, you know, I like a little lively debate. I'd like to get into it with you people. How about you write to us? Because we'd love to hear from you. Yeah, the Giamatti, the pugilist. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Look, send your questions or comments to questions at chinwagpod.fm. Or if you have a topic you want us to cover and it's strange enough, then maybe we'll talk about it here on this very podcast. Chinwag is a production of Treefort Media and Touchy Feely Films, hosted and executive produced by Paul Giamatti and Stephen Asma. Executive producers for Treefort are Kelly Garner and Lisa Ammerman. Dan Carey is executive producer for Touchy Feely. Our series producer is Rachel Whitley Bernstein. Original theme music by Luke Topp, with additional music by Via Mardot. Oscar Guido is our executive in charge of production. Tom Monahan is head of audio for Treefort. Animation created by Alex Sokol. Audio production, supervision, and editing by Maxwell Carney. Additional audio assistance and mixing by Jeff Neal. Video editing by Brian Barcheski. With additional production management from Renee Levesque. Lastly, for more information, go to chinwagpod.fm. And find us on Instagram or TikTok at chinwagpod or on Twitter at chinwag underscore pod. <laughs>